stocks, houses, commodities, Bitcoin, the price of nearly everything is up double digits compared to last year's pre-coronavirus highs. Have the trillions in stimulus ushered in a new bull market in, well, everything? Or have they helped blow the biggest asset price bubble in history? Well, macro analyst Wolf Richter suspects the latter, and he doesn't think we have much time left before it bursts. And, you know, this, is, this looks very much like the peak of the market to me. Hello and welcome to Wealthion.com. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets. This week, we're joined by Wolf Richter, who's the founder and publisher of WolfStreet.com, where he reports on and dissects economic business and financial data, the notable actions of the Federal Reserve and Wall Street, and the many complex entanglements debacles and opportunities offered by today's markets. I'm a big fan of Wolf and his work. He's a good friend. Welcome to the program, Wolf. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us today. So, um, Wolf, there's so much that I want to get into with, into with you, but why don't I start with a question I like to ask all of our guests here um, before introducing any of my potential biases here, positively or negatively. What is your current assessment of today's economy and the financial markets? Well, the economy uh, is definitely split in two. There is part of it that is uh, in an extraordinary boom, and there's part of it that's uh, in, in deep trouble. And the financial markets, uh, any markets, really any asset markets, are in, in, in an incredible bubble. And uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it is, um, it's funny almost the daily reporting we're getting about these, these uh, uh, ridiculous things going on, and yeah, we've got things blowing up here and there and left and right, and and uh, but they're not really related. They're just signs of of the excesses that are now coming to the top, you know. And something pops and blows up, and and then we just go on, and 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 that's the kind of atmosphere we now have in the market. It doesn't really matter, you know. It's just it's just one huge big game, and it's going to continue forever. All right, and we've had a, a number of uh, different guests on this program that share a similar view. Um, I think uh, in, in many ways we hear that term bubble an awful lot. We've had a lot of longtime investors, you know, some that are in their 80s uh, that are saying that this is the most extreme environment that they have ever seen. Of course, on the other side of that uh, table, there are a lot of people that say this is the best environment they've ever seen for making wealth and people that are just sort of applauding uh, what's going on here, but uh, you sound like you're more in the camp of, of the average guest we've had here who says, well, look, it, this is aberrant and, and requires a lot of uh, skepticism. It, it's really both. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic time to make wealth because that's what a bubble is. <laughs> you know, by definition, you know, in a bubble, that's where everything becomes bigger and you make wealth. And the end of a bubble is that if you don't get out in time, you know, you're going to lose some or all of that. And right, so right. That, that's a terrible time for losing lots of wealth is when the bubble bursts. And of course, you know, human psychology is, um, uh, for those that, that play in the game is, well, we'll look, you know, the famous Chuck Prinz line of, of dancing uh, while the music's playing. You know, everybody thinks, well, I'll just be dancing close to the door so that when this thing begins to look like it's unwinding, I can be one of the first out. And of course, the majority of people can't be among the first out. It's just not mathematically 
possible. So um, this is a good segue to uh, the first question I want to ask you, which is um, uh, about the recent news, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, um, where Archegos Capital Management, which was a, a little known private family office, managed to accumulate um, billions and billions and billions of uh, exposure to uh, some concentrated stocks and, uh, and basically imploded um, and uh, had just tremendous losses that, that wiped out, I, I think I've seen estimates of like 20 billion of market cap. Um, and it really caught the uh, you know, Wall Street by surprise. And it led to, I believe, the um, you know, largest margin call since the Lehman crisis, right? And so um, uh, my question, I guess, for, for you on this is, this is sort of one of those things that uh, you know, caught, caught Wall Street by surprise, um, showed that there was a lot more um, risk in the system than people realized that this you know, one office had been able to amass this, this huge exposure to these stocks using swaps um, without even holding any underlying collateral against them. And the big question last week was, is this going to create a ripple effect where it starts bringing down other players that were exposed to these stocks that, that were getting hit? Um, it looks right now that maybe it's relatively contained, but, but if you've got different data, please let me know. And I guess my question to you is, is, um, is this a sign of the, uh, that, that things are much less stable than people who are buying into the euphoria of the bubble are believing at this point in time? Yes, uh, and that's kind of what I mentioned, that things are sort of blowing up individually, one over here, one over there, and they're unrelated, but they're all uh, blowing up for the same reason, extraordinary leverage. And uh, some leverage is disclosed and you know it, I mean, we know margin debt, for example, that's, a, that's the only monthly indicator we have of the leverage in the stock market. And uh, it's reported by brokers to FINRA and FINRA puts the thing together on a monthly basis. That is up 50, in February it was up 50% from February a year ago, uh, by a huge amount. So, and, sorry, did you say 50, 50%? Yeah, 50%, 50%. And it's gigantic, and it's February to February, so that's before the March uh, sell-off. And uh, February last year was already pretty high. And this is this indicates that there is a, a, a gigantic jump in leverage in the stock market. And most of the leverage in the stock market is not in margin loans. That is just a disclosed part of it. That's what brokers disclose. That's what retail investors do in some hedge funds. But you have security-based lending, and you have all kinds of other uh, uh, leverage, including the swaps that uh, Archegos uh, ran aground with. And so this is hidden leverage. We don't know. And the interesting thing with, with this hedge fund is that it played with different banks. So with Deutsche Bank, with Goldman Sachs, with Merrill Lynch, with Nomura, with Credit Suisse, and uh, made these swap agreements with each one of these, these brokers. And, and they each didn't know about the other because it wasn't disclosed. So uh, Goldman Sachs didn't know how much other leverage there was from this particular hedge fund because uh, Merrill Lynch Deutsche Bank didn't disclose it either. And, and so when that ran into trouble, they started realizing, oh, it's not just me, it's a bunch of other banks doing the same deal. And we're all gonna have to sell the underlying stocks to, uh, to get out of these positions. And 
and and they have to do it at the same time against each other. And that's what leverage does. You know, that's exactly what leverage does. You have a whole bunch of forced sellers suddenly showing up in the market and uh, and then things just go haywire. And in this particular case, it yeah, it was it was billions of dollars and, and the market just kind of brushed it off after a while. I mean, the individual stocks sold off very hard. So if you own some of those, and these are concentrated positions in in and just a handful of companies, and they sold off as the, the, the banks were selling the underlying stocks, actual equities, you know, and uh, and so, you know, so you had, uh, if you own some of those, you had that in your portfolio, but otherwise the market just kind of went on, and, and you know, we, we have lots of these kinds of things now in the system that we, we, we can assume they're there. We haven't really seen them because they haven't blown up yet. We'll see them when they blow up individually, uh, but that was not the only case. So now there's an investigation into this. Uh, you know, family offices, these are hedge funds that are that disclose even less than than, than hedge funds that, that try to raise funds publicly. Uh, you know, they, they can take huge risks without um, uh, yeah, disclosing anything. And so, you know, we we are uh, I, I think just scratched the surface with this one thing, this, this one little incident that blew up that happened to be the second largest margin call in the history, and uh, you know, and, and we know there's going to be more of it. It's it's not just a single thing, you know. It's it's a pattern. It's out there. We, we're going to have to deal with it. Well, yeah, I mean, it raises the question, how many other archegoses are out there? And I, I think at this point, we really don't know, because like you said, th there there is some risk that we can measure, like margin debt, but then there are all these other options to to play with leverage that aren't reported. I mean, that was one of the big issues with, with archegoses, because it was a family office, it was held to much more lenient re reporting standards than, than other types of uh, institutions that are out there. So, um, you know, I, I, I listened to your comments there, Wolf, and, um, you know, you, you sort of set the stage for, for why this is a bubble. Um, and I, I look at GDP, right, where um, Q4 GDP still was still lower than Q1 GDP in 2020, right? We, we hadn't fully recovered from the, the economic impact of uh, the coronavirus uh, lockdowns and stuff like that. We probably will nudge above it now in Q1 when they report that. But, um, but the point is, is that GDP-wise, economic production, we haven't gone anywhere in a year, right? And yet the stock markets are much, much higher now than they were beforehand. So that's all been multiple expansion, and that's been fueled by leverage. It's been fueled by liquidity. Um, so let me, let me pivot now to, I want to talk about the um, recent uh, stimulus um, packages that, that uh, have been released since Biden's got into office. Um, he just signed into law a 1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief uh, law. Uh, and then he's just announced a two plus trillion uh, infrastructure bill that looks like it's you know gonna get approved and become law. Some are estimating by the time that's done, it could be almost as much as 4 trillion as mind boggling as that is to contemplate. But I guess my point is, is with all of this fresh liquidity sloshing around the place, could these elevated bubble prices persist for years from now? Like, has the game changed because of the scale of the liquidity, or is there a point at which, uh, no matter what they print, uh, the the piper will need to be paid? Yeah, so there's a couple of issues there. What what I found fascinating is that when um, 
Trump ran on a platform of uh, corporate tax cuts uh, and then instituted them, uh, you know, stocks rallied because of tax cuts. So now we've got uh, tax hikes uh, on the table and stocks rally because uh, we've got tax hikes on the table. So it, it's, um, it's interesting. Uh, the money that the government spends on stimulus test is money that it has to borrow. So it doesn't, the, the government itself doesn't print. Yeah, that's the, the Fed shop to do that. So the government has to borrow this money and, um, and taxpayers will have to pay interest on it forever. And um, so that's a, a reality. Um, now, I, I think when the government spends money like this, it it's, it's, has a greater impact on, on consumer price inflation than on asset price inflation. Whereas when the, when the Fed uh, buys assets, it has a much greater impact on asset price inflation than it does on consumer price inflation. So there's a different impact here and it, it, how I see it. And so especially when government uh, spends money that ends up going into uh, uh, actual transactions that end up in GDP. So uh, consumer spending or uh, investment by companies in equipment and, and those kinds of things. And um, that's what that, uh, so you'll, you'll get the stimulus of the economy, but you, you, get, you get a stimulus uh, to inflation as well, I think. And, and uh, especially when you give consumers money, you know, and they're going crazy buying stuff with money that they didn't earn, um, that's very inflationary. And we've seen all kinds of crazy stuff going on on, the, on, on consumer prices, uh, like in, in, in the vehicle market now, I mean, the uh, used car and new car market, I mean, they're just, the, the demand for vehicles, so the numbers of vehicles sold were actually lower than they were in 2019, so we're gonna compare it to, to, to two years ago. Uh, and, you know, all of uh, 2020, uh, yeah, vehicle sales, uh, were lower, you new and used, but prices were just surging and used car prices were just, I mean, you, you just can't believe what's going on there. I mean, pickup trucks, I mean, they're, they're going through the auction now with a 40% higher uh, price check than they did a year ago. I mean, it's just com uh, it completely amazing how, how people are disregarding, meaning dealers buying wholesale and customers buying retail, how they're disregarding these price increases and they're just paying. And of course, a dealer, you know, is in the business of buying and selling, and so they know they have to pass on the price increase to the consumer. And so they're, they're you know, they get into bidding wars at these auctions, and they buy, they have to buy, and then they sell, and the consumer is willing to pay. That is a change in attitude that I've never seen before. So this is what government stimulus spending will end up doing. I think it will go into inflation rather than asset prices. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the stock market is trying to price all this in right now, but uh, uh, I think the impact will be on, on, on another side of the economy. Okay, and um, those are crazy, uh, crazy points about what's happening in the, the, the used car market. Um, I, I, it's a great segue though. I was gonna ask you about the housing market, which you follow very closely. And um, you know, it, it seems like this price inflation that you're concerned about is already here, right? Both in, in the car uh, anecdotes you were just telling and in the housing market, you and I live in Northern California, uh, to the east of us, uh, out near Sacramento, there was a house that made the news earlier this week uh, because it received 122 offers, 
right? I mean, that that is how intense uh, the bidding war is. I just saw an article this morning about a house, you know, just sort of a regular four bedroom house in, in uh, uh, Canada that I think went for like 622,000 over asking price. Um, and you, again, follow this closely on your uh, wallstreet.com website. Uh, you put up an article recently um, talking about, um, I think you called it uh, the, the most splendid housing bubbles uh, in America. Uh, but you started with just a, a general um, US market uh, Case-Shiller chart, which shows that uh, the Case-Shiller housing price index is just far uh, deviating now more than it ever has before from underlying um, owner equivalent rents, um, which is just a pure sign that we're just seeing sort of like in the stock market, just vast multiple expansion in the price of housing. So um, is the reckoning already here? And, and, and as you answer that, you know, it's crazy to think about this because there's still 18 million households that remain unemployed due to COVID. I mean, yes, I know people are getting, uh, you know, a couple of stimulus checks in the mail, but but where is this vast wave of buying at much, much higher prices coming from? I, I don't think the average person yet thinks that, oh, my money's being inflated. I got to exchange it for real things as fast as possible. I don't think we're at that point in the runaway inflation story, but why are so many people spending so much money uh, with this much abandon right now? And this is what you get when there's a mania. It's psychological. So the, the fundamentals go out the window and it, it, it parallels what I said about the used vehicle market. Uh, it is becoming irrational and has become irrational. And of course, when you have a bidding war, the first thing to do is step away, <laughs> you know, because uh, you're always going to, in a bidding war, you end up, if you win, you lose. And uh, in, in this kind of environment, you know, there's an old banker adage that says, uh, you know, bad deals are made in good times. And, and we, in terms of asset price, we're in the best of times. I mean, the worst deals are now being made. And uh, so I think it's psychological. And there's, there's another thing that's happening because it's psychological and because these prices are surging, people are not selling the old homes. They're hanging on to them. So they're buying a new home and they're not selling the, the old home, they're moving and the old home is vacant and it's a yeah, highly leveraged investment. So they have a relatively small amount of equity in it. If the price increases by 15% uh, on a like a million dollar home around here, uh, that's a $150,000 increase in value. Uh, if the equity is $150,000, you doubled your money. And uh, so they have no pressure to sell. Mortgage rates are low, are low. the banks uh, don't force them to sell the prior home. And so they just sit on them. And these homes are vacant, they're sold, they moved out, they're gone, they're, they moved from San Francisco out to the uh, Lake Tahoe area and they, they love that. And, and now they own two homes, an empty one in San Francisco and, an, and the one they live in out in the ski area. And uh, this is happening all over the place now because there's no incentive to sell a home. You just sit on it and make a bunch of money on your highly leveraged bet. And uh, I'm going to publish an article on this. Um, the surge of the second home purchases, the mortgage applications for these second homes, uh, the share has risen to 14% of all uh, purchase mortgages uh, from the 5% or 6% range uh, in normal times. And, and more than double. I mean, this is this is a this is a big uh, thing that's going on right now. That uh, homeowners, when they buy a new home, they don't have to put the old home on the market. They're just going to benefit from uh, 
from the price increases and that changes the dynamics of the market. So now you have a vacant homes that are sort of in the shadow inventory waiting to be sold. Meanwhile, they're off the market. They create this artificial shortage and which creates an additional frenzy. And uh, you've got this whole psychology that sets in. And, and you know, this, is, this looks very much like the peak of the market to me. When you have this kind of frenzy going on, you know, people are starting to step back. We've seen pending sales come down. Uh, pending sales in San Francisco have plunged uh, on the last four weeks. They're below where they were a year ago in, in March, you know, when they're already collapsing last March, and now they're below that. And um, so people are stepping away uh, in some markets, at least, uh, from these these crazy price increases. And I think you'll see more of that. And, uh, but you know, it's it's just it's a mania. That's that's the only thing uh, that that's the word that best describes it. All right. So this is the heart of what I wanted to get in, into with you, Wolf, because. Um, Totally follow the logic that you laid out there. Um, I, I, I think there's some people wondering with all this liquidity sloshing around that we've been talking about, right? Both both fiscal and monetary stimulus. There's sort of a sense of there's a new floor because there's just so much more money out there that prices. We we may not have the massive kind of you know violent correction that we had like in 2008 or in 2001 just because there's just so much more money out there sloshing around. Um, I'm just curious to your reaction to that. Do you think that's true? Or, or given the excesses that you just railed about, is there the potential here that, that things could drop much lower than you know, people really think possible given right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's reasonable to think that there is this new floor, that everything has changed, everything is different now. And, uh, that because of all this liquidity, uh, you know, prices will never, multiples will never be as low as they used to be. Yeah, I mean, that's really a multiple thing they're talking about and, and that we'll just have multiples that are twice as high as the, the normal and forever. Uh, yeah, there is, there, I, I, can see, I can see that argument. Uh, on the other hand, uh, nobody benefits least of all the 1% uh, and not the banks and not the economy if uh, inflation spirals out of control. And so if you get inflation, it's 2%, that's one thing, and it's 4%, okay, it's kind of worrisome. But when inflation heads into the double digits or is threatening to go there, uh, that is very damaging to a lot of big interests. And uh, the Fed will make sure that that doesn't happen. And uh, the way it will make sure that that doesn't happen is it will pull back on, on its asset purchases. It will get rid of some of them. It will uh, raise interest rates. And so it will first uh, stop buying assets, then it will raise rate, and then it will start getting rid of some of the assets it has bought. And, uh, and if, if Inflation doesn't rise significantly, but just goes to 3% or 4%, you know, it stays in that the Fed will gradually unwind the stimulus. But when it threatens to go higher and starts becoming disruptive, uh, I think the Fed can step in pretty radically. It now has more tools than it used to have. It doesn't, it, it can raise interest rates, but it also can sell assets. And it couldn't do that before. Now it can. And, um, uh, it, it can stop inflation uh, with its tools. And, and when that happens, I think um, 
there's going to be uproar in the markets. Uh, that's that's the least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let, let me let me dig into that, and that's that's another great segue into the last topic I want to talk with you about here, which is the Fed. Um, so you said the Fed can step in to uh, to combat inflation, and inflation really is the big. Uh, it's the big bad here that doesn't serve the banks, doesn't serve the 1%, et cetera. So folks don't want it to really happen. But the Fed is still saying, hey, we're not worried about inflation. We're trying to get it. We're happy to let it run hot for a while above our 2% guide, right? So they're, they're being incredibly, um, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, lackadaisical uh, or just, you know, they're not worried at all about it from at least their, their public projection. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, Jerome Powell did say recently, hey, the economy's, you know, come back well um, from, uh, you know, the coronavirus hit. Uh, hooray us. We stepped in and rescued the world. At some point, we probably will start slowing down our easing, right? We'll start reducing our asset purchases, et cetera. But man, not going to happen anytime soon. And it's going to be really, really slow, you know, almost like Janet Yellen's watching paint dry, you know, comment. Um, and there's going to be a ton of transparency around it. And of course, you know, uh, the Fed has said that in the past and they've not followed through. So we kind of when you look at their historical actions and you look at what they're saying right now, they don't seem like they're going to take any action against inflation anytime soon. Yeah, so uh, 2% inflation is on average is what they're targeting uh, on on their measurement, which is core PCE, which is the lowest inflation measure that we have. So that would translate maybe into something around 3% or two and a half to 3% uh, core CPI. And, and CPI is, uh, doesn't really track all the inflation the way households experience it. So now actual inflation will be higher, but that's still, that's kind of the area where it targets. Now when inflation hits 4%, I think the Fed is going to start getting a little nervous. And especially if it's 4%, that is not a one-time thing. It's going to go to 4% and it's going to be a one-time thing and they're going to blow it off. And, uh, but if it stays there and it tends to creep up further, um, that, that will get antsy. And uh, yeah, because inflation is something that, that is at least in part psychological and you have to break the psychology of inflation. And, uh, you know, it, it is something that will take time. And so if, if you get serious about inflation, when inflation is 8%, uh, it's going to go higher, uh, you know, before it comes down and it, it doesn't change that quickly. So um, I, my belief is that if inflation really gets out of hand, that, that will react. And uh, they have said that. And on the other hand, out of hand means what for the Fed? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and, and, and can I just interrupt for a second to say which inflation really matters, right? So the CPI, the core CPI right now is like around 1.7, right? But you and I were just talking about the tremendous increases in home prices and vehicle prices. And I, I've put up a chart in past weeks showing uh, just major commodity price increases year over year, and they're in the double or triple digits. So you know, is it the CPI that matters, which really nobody believes and is super low, or is it is it the inflation that the real people who need to exist in the real world are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem we're facing. We have, especially the Fed uses it uh, as a measure, something that that is not realistic for most households. So, uh, you know, the, the and, and, and yeah, the, the whole the whole media, uh, the whole uh, establishment of economics 
percent inflation as growth and as something that's positive. And uh, so, you know, there's this whole support machinery built up to increase inflation and support inflation. And, uh, you know, we're, we're really talking about the, the, the purchasing power of the dollar getting slashed here and the purchasing power of labor that is denominated in dollars. So when inflation gets to be uh, significant, the purchasing power of labor uh, drops and people in, in, in at some point, uh, you know, have to cut back their purchases and, um, and, and they run into all kinds of other trouble. And, and yeah, that's happening in housing already and that's happening in all kinds of other things and cars, I mean, the, a very large number of people have been locked out of the new vehicle market for years already because new vehicles have gotten so much more expensive. And uh, yeah, that's why new vehicle sales have, have flatlined for 20 years. And, and, and uh, now they're, last year they were below their were in the 1970s. So, you know, the inflation is a big issue for the economy in, in, in terms of, of the purchasing power of labor. And uh, if wages don't come up with inflation, uh, you know, then you have an issue. Now, we have minimum wage increases around the country in different cities. Uh, there's other wage pressure. So some of the wages are coming up at the low end. And, and so that part is good. Um, but overall, I think the, uh, the Fed is going to worry about inflation when it starts to impact the economy and the wealth. Uh, of, of investors. All right, and so just to put you on the spot, won't hold you to this, but what does your gut tell you? How far are we away from that? Is it, is it five years? Is it five months? You know, when do you suspect it could really begin to become an issue? Well, so I think we're going to see a burst in inflation. That's, that's kind of built in already. We're going to see a burst in inflation uh, this year. And, and so it's going to be, an, and I mean, you know, four plus percent. And, uh, and it's going to be uh, dismissed. It's a one-time thing. And that may be true. Maybe it's a one-time thing. We're going to get that. And it's already in the works. It's already happening beneath the surface. So this is building up. And it could be bigger than 4%. could be quite a bit bigger than 4%. And um, so if next year we're still at 4 plus percent, uh, then... I think all bets are off the table. Yeah, the, if, if that's not a one-time burst, but if that's starting to get baked into the pricing mechanisms and into the psychology and people, consumers are willing to pay and companies are willing to pay and they don't go on buy a strike and when inflation gets established like that, I mean, that will become visible. And um, at that point, um, if that happens, I think, uh, the Fed will start making lots of noises about it. Okay, all right. So in uh, the couple of minutes we have left here, Wolf, um, I'll ask you, for those folks that are watching and are concerned as you are about the, um, the bubble heights that a lot of these assets are in and, and they're trying to figure out how to invest in this market, my guess is most of them don't wanna be in the uh, picking nickels up in front of the steamroll camp, uh, steamroller camp um, by, you know, being heavily long a market that they fear could contract in the relatively near future. What advice would you offer today's, to today's concerned investor who's really looking to protect their wealth? Sure, they'd love to try to you know, get some growth, but they, they don't want to get that at the risk of losing you know, a quarter or more of their portfolio. 
Well, I think the worst you can do is get into the market now. Uh, if you are already in the market, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's some decisions to be made here and, and uh, long-term investors have a different attitude about this than traders do. Uh, but when I look at the housing charts, for example, when I l listen to the bidding war stories, uh, you know, I, I think this is the time to take a breath, step back and just take a deep breath and, and, and watch, you know, there, um, yeah, there, there is nothing lost by not winning a bidding war. <laughs> you know, and and uh, uh, that that's that would be my recommendation. I mean, these are really crazy times, and and uh, I mean, sure, if he, there's some some there's some things out there that are stressed or in trouble, uh, you know, they're in real estate and uh, retail properties have gotten completely crushed. A brick and mortar retail isn't coming back. But you know, if the property is in the right place, you can put housing on it or something. I mean, there's some, some opportunities around there that if you're specialized in that, I think are, are very good. But uh, in, in terms of retail investors, generally in, in, uh, you have money that you want to invest. I think now is the time to take a deep breath. All right, all right. So it sounds like you're saying, yeah, yeah take a deep breath. Don't, don't be very along the market, really sort of a play defense and, um, you know, keep your powder dry because you think there may be better opportunities ahead. I see you nodding here. All right, great. Well, for look, for people that have enjoyed this discussion and would like to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Wolfstreet.com. It's free. It's always there. Uh, we also have a uh, vibrant and uh, well-behaved commenting section uh, with some people just reading this, the comments and skipping my articles, but uh, uh, that's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I can attest as an avid reader of it uh, that Wolf is a, just as great a written analyst as he is a, a spoken one. And he writes a prodigious a number of articles per week uh, and gets really, really into the details, uh, housing market, Fed policy, et cetera. So um, can't recommend enough going to wolfstreet.com. All right. Well, Wolf, thanks so much for giving us so much of your time. And we hope to have, have you back on the program again later in 2021. All right. Great. Thank you. Take care, buddy. All right, John and Mike, as I do every week, I'm going to uh, hand the baton now to the lead partners of New Harbor Financial, which is the financial advisory firm endorsed by uh, Wealthion. Um, John and Mike, great to see you guys. See you again, Adam, and uh, nice to see uh, Wolf again as well. Nice to see you, Adam. Yeah, always fun to see you, Wolf. Uh, good to be back in the saddle with you guys. We did this last one from Hawaii. Um, can't say I don't miss uh, being there. I sure wish I were back there, but uh, it's still good to see you guys here stateside, uh, mainland side. Um, all right, guys, well, look, um, I'll give you an opportunity to uh, react to, uh, to what Wolf said. And actually, John, why don't we start with you? Because I think that you had a, uh, uh, a data point there, um, you know, given that Wolf was talking about the, the um, high likelihood of higher inflation going forward. Um, I think you've got some data that shows how stocks tend to uh, perform when inflation picks up. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think his bigger picture point was uh, in, a, in an inflationary, you know, kind of spiral upward uh, scenario. Nobody wins. The, the 1% doesn't win. You know, I don't like to throw labels like that. But the idea is nobody, inflation is, especially a, a swift move to higher inflation, is a categorically bad situation for virtually everybody. There, there is no good result of that. And that's, you know, we, you know for those that were you know, uh, alive and well, and and you know, uh, of, of adult age in the early '80s, they remember what uh, 
inflation looked like and, and what that wreaked on everyday life. Uh, and that was, you know, serious inflation, of course, and there was serious measures that had to be taken to, uh, to put it in check. But yeah, I mean, uh, I've, we've made the point many times that stocks, um, especially, for example, when they're at lofty valuations, which they certainly are today, loftier than they've ever been, um, tend to be one of the very first casualties in a move higher inflation. So I shared a chart with you, Adam, that um, you know, basically shows you know, kind of the uh, return during periods of, um, of inflationary spikes. And you can see probably the, the, the one that's most recent uh, and relevant is, is in the you know, late 70s, early 80s uh, in that chart, or I guess mid, uh, early 70s into early, early 80s, where there was a pretty, pretty sharp spike higher in inflation. And you can see the returns in the Dow Jones in this case were essentially stagnant. Yeah, pretty flat for years. Yeah, pretty flat. But what that what a, what that flatness um, doesn't tell you is there were some very sh sharp declines along the way. So there's there's a uh, you know saying you can get to nowhere in, in 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 very interesting ways. One is you know literally going nowhere through a flat line. The other is you know through some massive sell offs that if you're lucky you can claw back to the to, to the flat line. So so that's a very I think. Um, analogous um, parallel to where we are today. You know, very rich valuations, um, very obvious signs for many people that inflation is starting to take hold and not just houses, you know, um, food prices, uh, material prices, uh, metals, you, you name it. Um, uh, a lot of those things are, are going higher and that, that's not a very welcome sign, especially when we're in such a economy, I'll use the benign word that the central banks use, accommodative, environment with monetary policy and fiscal budget deficits and things like that. It could be a, a real disaster scenario, frankly. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's something that people really don't fully understand because I, I talked about sort of just the tsunami of trillions that's been flooding into the, the, the system. Um, but as Wolf pointed out, especially with the recent um, uh, bills and laws being passed by President Biden, um, those are, uh, that's, that's fiscal stimulus which is money that has to be borrowed, right? So those aren't, those aren't um, you know, the, the government itself can't print the dollars, that's the Fed. The Fed does monetary stimulus, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and so basically, you know, all of those trillions are going to have an interest rate associated with them. And um, if we get to a point in a year or two where uh, the Fed is forced to start tightening because of inflation concerns, you know, it, it it's going to really catch the markets by surprise because it's essentially going to be not adding to the liquidity which it's doing on a monthly basis going forward, but it's going to be withdrawing liquidity from the system. Um, it's going to do that in many ways by rising, raising rates, which is going to make the debt payments on all those new trillions that are being passed be much more burdensome going forward. So it's going to be just a huge constriction of the system that I don't think most people can really even imagine right now. So um, if Wolf is correct, and that's actually what happens, you know, in the span of the next one, two, three years, um, I mean, it is just going to be, as you said, John, it's just going to be devastating. So anyways, time will tell. Mike, let me, uh, let me ask you, um, I know that, uh, feel free to comment on anything you like to what Wolf said, but when I asked him his advice for today's investors, I mean, he pretty much just said, get out of the pool. And um, I know at New Harbor, you guys, um, you, you, you do have some of your portfolio allocated uh, to certain positions, but you're very selective about that. And I think uh, you are keeping an awful large percentage of your model portfolio dry. That's correct, right? 
We are. We're, you know, we're up to 60% um, dry powder, if you will, which is mostly in treasury bills and a, a small piece, too, of, of a longer term bond for, for uh, something that we wanted to enter for a trade for a few months. But 60% bonds, mostly short term, a couple percent cash. That's nearly, you know, it's nearly two thirds cash. Yeah. And sorry, just to be clear, you're talking treasuries, right? Treasuries. Yeah, absolutely. That 60% is in US treasuries. Most of them are short term T bills, a small piece of it are slightly longer maturities, but mostly predominantly skewed towards the really, really short stuff. And the short stuff is paying basically nothing close to zero. This war on cash, this war on savers has been going on for well over a decade now. And it's just an absolute crime that people have to feel this kind of discomfort to be in just absolutely safe things. But we feel even though it's painful to do so, and it's not comfortable for an investor to sit in near 0% yielding cash that we think it's the right thing to do waiting for opportunities. We still think a deflationary impulse is coming, even with all of the concern about inflation. Yes, we see we see all the data too. Lumber has doubled in the last year. A sheet of plywood costs 80 bucks instead of 40. You know, uh, oil and gas are up. The base metals are, are, are up a lot. Copper, aluminum, zinc, lead. Um, and, and even the grains are way up. So yeah, I mean, inflation is starting to trickle into commodities. Inflation, first and foremost, has been seen in the asset markets, the real estate market and the stock market, where we are now at absurd, absurd heights in both. I mean, it's, it is unequivocally a bubble. Uh, we'd be happy to sit with anyone and go through the data on the stock market side. Wolf was talking a lot about real estate. And how that's in a bubble, we're talking to our clients and prospects, we're hearing how homes are going for $200,000 plus over asking price all over the country, you know, from the West Coast to the East Coast to Hawaii, everywhere, you know, I mean, and then add that to the bubble in real estate in Toronto and Vancouver and Australia, everywhere in the world. I mean, it's it's amazing the conversations now we have and, 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 and the stuff that you read, the euphoria is just so palpable all the time everywhere and it's been like that for three months four months straight you know and and this is a bubble if we ever saw one so yeah hey mike mike let me let me just interject there because um i've got to imagine you guys have got to be in a hard position to be in right now where there is so much fomo fear of missing out you know in the markets right now that that even the more prudent people are beginning to get cracks in their confidence and saying, look, is this just going to continue forever? And do I just need to, uh, you know, uh, forget my concerns and, and learn to love the bubble and just just jump in and, and not, you know, watch everybody else make money while I'm being the one prudent one who's not getting much of a return. Um, <clears throat> so I imagine that you've got to have people that are calling and, and you know, wanting slash needing, you know, some handholding, or at least uh, just some really hard discussions about whether they want to continue, um, you know, obeying their, their uh, prefrontal cortexes, right, which are the rational part of their brain saying, look, here's all the data that suggests this is not going to end well, and you don't want to be that last greatest fool to jump in. Um, and that's an argument with their, their lizard brain, um, you know, that's telling them, hey, look, uh, there's a party going on, you're not in it, jump into the party. So is it true? I mean, are you, are you, are you sort of having those really, really tough challenges of just trying to keep people grounded or, or at least, you know, help them think through what to do? All day long, all day long for weeks and weeks and months now, particularly in the last month or so. 
there's FOMO all over the place, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or stocks or Bitcoin related stocks, I mean, there's, it, it's everywhere. It's tough. It's tough to be prudent. A lot of our clients are prudent people. They, you know, they all are actually, and they came to us that way. A lot of them are very prudent and, and looking for somebody or, or a firm that will hold true to a discipline based on math and fundamentals in the midst of this bubble. But even the most prudent and cautious are starting to feel it. And we're fielding those calls all the time. And it isn't easy, you know, because what makes sense in this, this mania, this central bank, jeez, uh, manipulation, for lack of a better word, out of control, what makes sense is hard assets, you know, and uh, that does mean gold, silver, and real estate. Real estate has, has been caught right up in the bubble, though. And, you know, and look at Bitcoin, which just crossed 60,000, and it's up sixfold in the last, you know, year to date, at least. Our clients, for the most part, are believers in gold and silver like we are. And what's made it even extra hard for some people in terms of the FOMO is that Bitcoin and the stock market go vertical and gold and silver kind of go sideways to down, you know, from the August high. Gold just hit a 20% pullback, the technical definition of a bear market from its August high. We think the opportunities to add or to buy gold, particularly for people that don't have it already, are, are front and center right here at these prices. But, you know, going back to the, 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 the question about FOMO, yeah, absolutely. Everyone feels it psychologically. It's a real burden to feel. And we think central banks are waging a psychological war on, on all of us. This is a mental war. That's what's going on. You know, a lot of this, this uh, you know, stuff that you me can measure in the economy and in the markets, it's never before been seen. So there's, a, there's an error of, of, of surreality to it. And so we're there to help people through that and to, and to feel that with them and go through it with them. And I guess I'd also like to say that we do have some tools for some people that just feel like they have to have a little bit in. We'd rather have them do it with us than somewhere else because we can put together a handful of stocks and then we can marry uh, call options to them and, and partially hedge their downside, give them a small hedged entree into a little piece if they want in their portfolio. Not saying that this is what they should do, but you know, please call us if you feel that and we can, we can talk through it and we have tools if need be. Thank you guys for fighting that good fight. Uh, I know it's very uh, tough position to be in and I really empathize with the people that are calling you with, with you know, their stresses and, and concerns and questions because um, as we've talked about, you know, from week after week here, um, markets are, are, are bubble markets are nothing if not psychological. Um, and this is the point where the psychological trauma just becomes, you know, incredibly, incredibly uh, hard to endure. Um, but, you know, and look, we're the first to say nobody has the answers here. All we're trying to do is take a data driven approach so that investing decisions that get made are being made with that prefrontal cortex and, and not with that, that lizard brain. Um, so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, people make their own decisions. And I know you, you said that if people want to take, you know, get more long than your average, you know, portfolio, you'll help them do that. Um, but, you know, you just want to make sure that they are understanding the reasons for doing so. And then that they're not just sort of succumbing to an emotional pressure. Uh, John, in the last couple of seconds that we have here, um, I, I did want to get your, your sense on some predictions that we've talked about on this program recently. Um, so we interviewed David Hunter at the beginning of the year, who predicted, a um, even though the markets had performed quite well for the previous eight months, he said, look, the, the melt-up's really going to begin this year. And he predicted a high of about uh, 4,500 on the S&P. 
Um, and then it predicted by sort of mid-year, a 65 to 80% drop in the markets. And uh, I believe we're now hovering around 4,000 on the S&P. So he's actually been pretty prescient on the continuation of the melt-up uh, in the first part of 2021. Uh, I guess we're gonna see soon whether you know, we're gonna shoot up to the 4,500 he predicted or not. But I do wanna contrast uh, that slightly with the, um, uh, it's not really a contrast, probably more of a comparison with the Jeremy Grantham prediction um, who, you know, very celebrated longtime investor, um, lots and lots of market expertise, who basically said, look, when you see the constellation of, of data that we see in, in the markets as we do today, history shows that within a few months, you invariably get at least a 50% correction. So these are, you know, both guys that are predicting very large market corrections quite soon going forward. Um, do you guys, you know, do you have a sense one way or the other, uh, probability-wise, whether you think these guys are going to be proven right, given what you're seeing? Yeah, so Adam, thanks for that, that question. And uh, so in, in true humility, which we need to be, um, if there's one lesson that our seats <laughs> have taught us over the years is humility and, and um, you know, temperedness is, is absolutely necessary. But look, I mean, and, and I like to use Jeremy Grantham's kind of um, casting this, this picture as an example. He, you know, basically says, you know, if we, if we, use as a standard of, you know, kind of uh, calling the exact top as, as the type of standard we need to, use, need to use as to when to get out or when to dramatically scale risk. That is a, that is a hopelessly impossible task to do. But if we, instead we ask, you know, um, is there some high likelihood that at some point in the future, whether it's a month from now, three months, six months, even a year from now, Will we have been better off by getting out now or dramatically scaling risk? That's what he was saying, right? So, um, you know, uh, the the probabilities are almost almost I would say near 100% in terms of eventually there being you know uh, a point, and that that eventual point is probably very soon, within months, not years, where you know not getting in the market today or getting out or getting out in part is going to be a better decision than getting in in a big way or not getting it. You know, yeah, the, to answer your question, I, I think it's very highly probable. Timing is impossible. You know, there certainly is no shortage of reasons why it could happen tomorrow or, you know, next, next week, but it need not happen to still be the, the right visual. And, um, you know, to, to Mike's, you know, adding to what Mike said, said about FOMO, it's not, not just people not being in the market that have FOMO, it's also people that are very heavily invested that perhaps feel like, um, even though they've ridden a, 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 a nice wave here, they're still paralyzed about getting out. And we can help those folks as well. You don't need to be paralyzed. You can take steps to progressively get more defensive without giving up that, you know, that one leg in, even if that's a very, very dangerous leg to have in. Thanks, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that and we'll close on this point, which is, um, uh, you know, oftentimes what happens with human psychology is, is you get sort of really wedded to those positions, you're looking at the gains you've had and, and it's hard to press that sell button because your mind is saying, well, what happens if it goes up another 20% next month, right? And then of course, if there is a correction, uh, you ride the entire position down during that correction. Um, I was just on a, a video earlier this morning with Mike Maloney and Jeff Clark over at Gold Silver, and they were talking about how silver tends to um, uh, it historically sort of has these, these big run-ups, um, but they're relatively short-lived. 
So it spikes really high, but then it sort of comes back down, um, you know, relatively quickly. And one of the points I was making in that is that's where exactly you want to work with somebody like you, uh, John and Mike, and your team at New Harbor, um, because you can put in defensive strategies in that, you know, just a simple one would be some put options where you can basically purchase a lot of downside protection for a concentrated position for, you know, not a lot of money relative to the size of your overall position. So in markets like this, when things are so elevated, strategies like that just make such a ton of sense. Yeah, Adam, I want to add one, one real numerical kind of point to, to this whole concept of FOMO. And, you know, we oftentimes hear from people and even professionals on TV, you know, folks that should know better say, well, yeah, you know, yeah, the market will go down eventually, but, you know, if you keep waiting for that to happen, you're going to miss out on the upside and you can afford by, by staying in for the upside, you can afford some, some really large down draws. But when you think about the math, many people think about the math in the wrong way, because you, have, you need to think about it in a compounded return way. So for example, we've heard clients or people say, yeah, may, you know, uh, maybe we're due for a 40% decline, but if I go up 50% and I see a 40% decline, I'm still ahead of the game. That's not right. That's not right. Cause the, if you think about the math, Okay, let's use. Let's say you start with $100 and you get a 50% gain. You're at 150, right? You only need a 33% decline to get back to where you started. A 40% decline on a 50% gain actually leaves you in negative territory. You know, even more extreme. If you had a 100% return, it only takes a 50% decline to wipe that out entirely. Right. So an 80% decline is a vast amount of loss of of assets. So people. And I'm not saying this in any kind of arrogant and condescending way. They conveniently forget how compounding returns work when they think about, you know, oh, so what if the market pulls back 30, 40%? As long as they get some gains, do the math and you'll see what that does to, to, to forward advances. Well, that's a great reminder. And it really underscores again, why we have you guys on this program. Um, it's your focus and your expertise on risk mitigation. Um, it's a huge reason why we have recommended so many people to you guys over the years. All right, so in concluding here, folks, real quick, um, if you have not already yet, please subscribe to this channel. It just takes a second. While you're down there, click the like button as well. That does make a difference in how widely these videos get shared. If you want to find out who's coming on this program in the future, I announce uh, our future guests early on my Twitter feed, which is at Menlo Bear. So please go follow me there. And if you'd like to see some guests on this program, suggest them on the Twitter feed. I do watch it and I do take your input seriously. And lastly, um, if you found that what uh, you know Wolf had to say about the markets uh, concerning um, if John and Mike have given you some additional uh, you know, corroboration to concerns that you might have had that, hey, maybe it's a little bit better to play intelligent defense here rather than just blindly go along these markets. If you have not yet scheduled a free financial portfolio review with the folks at New Harbor, I uh, strongly recommend you consider that. We tell you how to do this uh, right at the end of this video. Uh, it only takes a couple of seconds to sign up. It is completely free. There is no commitment, no strings attached. You do not have to work with these guys. Uh, they'll just sit down with you. They'll hear your whole, uh, assess your whole personal financial situation, and they'll just tell you what they think you should do. If you want to go implement that yourself or with another, another advisor, great. Um, but if you decide you might want to work with them, the door's open for that too. They really are just doing that to make sure that an, as many people as possible as hear their advice um, are putting themselves in position to not be collateral damage 
if indeed the market's correct in the way that, that Wolf and John, Mike and I have been talking about here. Um, and with that said, guys, another great discussion. Look forward to seeing you guys next week. We've got two great guests coming next week. Um, I'll leave viewers in suspense as to who they are. Or they can go on my Twitter feed and find out who they are. Um, and whatever the markets do between now and then, we will be following it here when we reconvene next week. Take care, guys. Thank you, Adam. We'll see you next week. And we'll see you later, Adam. Have a good one. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA but for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-US clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.